Good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to our Parsha Perspectives for today. So glad that you are here as we have the privilege of studying Parsha's Tzav as well as giving a few thoughts on the Megillah. First of all, as always, we begin with gratitude to our generous sponsors. Parsha series sponsor for the year, dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family. In memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Lili Nishmas, David Ben, Menachem, Monash. This morning, Sheer, sponsored by Michael Goldman, in memory of his in-laws, Cantor and Mrs. Abraham Bruin, formerly of Long Beach, New York. The Shama should have an Aliyah. Thank you, Jeff, very much for your generosity and your sponsorship. And this is the last week, if you help us get to our goal. This is the last week of mentioning the BRS Global Campaign. If you're a member of BRS, thank you for your membership. Thank you for enabling all of our learning and teaching and streaming and writing. If you're not a member of BRS and you are benefiting and enjoying, which if you're hearing this right now, either live or later, that means you are hopefully benefiting or enjoying. Otherwise, it's unclear exactly why you're hearing this. Please go on brsonline.org slash global, brsonline.org slash global. If you've not done your part, you'd be hard pressed to explain to me why. If you benefit and you enjoy and you don't take a moment to give whatever you can, whatever level you can, I would be very curious to know why you don't think it's worth your hakar satov or your help to enable us to continue. So please take that moment, help us get to our goal, brsonline.org slash global, and there will be people in the lobby right after for those who are here live to be able to give. So I want to share two quick thoughts on Purim, and then we'll get into Parshat Tzav, and even if you're listening to this later, it's Thursday night or Friday, it is Shushan Purim, and these Purim thoughts remain relevant and important. The first comes from Rav Avram Shor, the great Rav Avram Shor, the Lekach uh, V'Halibov, and he says the following. We know there's a big discussion among halachic authorities, among poskim, whether specifically one should give their Mishloch Manos. The Miguel tells us that the way we commemorate, one of the ways that we celebrate and we honor this miracle, we survived an extermination attempt. The Jews of Shushan not only survived, but they thrived. And we have several different ways in which we express and reflect that miracle, express our gratitude, commemorate it. And one of them is Mishloch Manos Ish Ehu. We deliver to a friend two food items, not now for the halachic analysis, well, how you define two separate food items, two food groups, raw versus cooked, uh, solid versus liquid, all the halachas that go into the definition of Mishloch Manos, but one of the ways that we commemorate and we re-experience, so to say, the miracle is Mishloch Manos Ishlerei Ehu. We give Mishloch Manos, don't spend too much money, don't spend too much time, don't be competitive with your neighbor about it, but Mishloch Manos Ishlerei Ehu. If you have limited resources and you can either put them into Matanos Levyonim, you could give more money to help others or have fancier, more impressive, more competitive mishloch manos. The Rambam is clear, the halacha is clear. Put more money into helping others than impressing others with your mishloch manos. The Rambam gives a fascinating reason, by the way. The Rambam says, you know why? If I were giving that Moshe I'd say, you have underprivileged people. You have people suffering or struggling. You have those who are going to have mac and cheese for their Purim Suda. They can't afford meat and wine. Of course you have to help them. Helping them supersedes, comes before impressing others with your Mishloch Manos. But that's not the reason the Rambam gives. You know what the reason the Rambam gives is? What's the essence of the holiday of Purim? What are we trying to experience? I'll give you a hint. We're experiencing not only Purim, we're experiencing it the entire month of Adar. Misha Adar Mar Bimbo what? Mar Bimbo Simcha, writes the Rambam. 
You know what will give you more simcha? Nothing gives you more simcha than helping others. It's more joyful, it's more pleasant, it's more pleasurable to help others than it is to impress others. So if you have limited resources and you could put them into either matanos levyonim or mishloach manos, matanos levyonim. You have to fulfill the basic mitzvah of mishloach manos. One has to fulfill the basic obligation, but the basic obligation doesn't include lucite personalized containers, doesn't include expensive, over-the-top, special order, whatever. So matanos levyonim. Okay, that's a personal pet peeve of mine. So in that context, there's a discussion. Should you specifically deliver mishloach manos Rather than give directly, should you ask somebody to be your agent, your representative, and to give it on your behalf? There's a debate. Wonders, Rav Avram Shor, what happened to the principle of mitzvah bo yosemi I thought the whole idea is we do mitzvahs, it's preferable not to delegate. It's preferable, it's preferable not to outsource. We show our love and our affection that we cherish and value a mitzvah when we eagerly do it ourselves. When we outsource or delegate, we look like we're trying to simply unburden ourselves from it. So what happened? Why don't we apply that principle? The Gemara derives that principle, by the way, in the context of preparing for Shabbos, turn Friday into Erev Shabbos. The Gemara talks about our great rabbis, they didn't hire help to wash the floor and set the table and shop and cook. They did it themselves. Rav Machrech he would cut off the head of the fish, and this one would go clean the meat, and this one would go. We do it ourselves, we don't delegate it to others. So what happened in Mitzvah Bo, Yoser Mibishlucho. So the Pnei Menachem, the Ger Rebbe, Rav Meshur quotes, had a very beautiful idea. He says, this is an unusual, unusual feature of Purim. Ordinarily, every other Mitzvah, every other holiday, we say, Mitzvah Bo, Yoser Mibishlucho. Better to do it yourself than through an agent. But the exception to that rule is Purim. And why is Purim the exception to that rule? Why should it be Ayyadeh Shliach? Why specifically should you do it through an agent to deliver the Mishloach Manos rather than do it through yourself? And he says basically the following. Ordinarily there's a wall, there's a barrier. Ordinarily there's a division between people. There's you and there's me. There's I and there's thou. We're different. We're altogether different, independent, separate and apart. But the mitzvah of Mishloach Manos is to create a sense of Ahaftalarecha Kamocha we're trying to generate a sense of that there's a camaraderie, a companionship, a connection, that we're all in this together, that we focus on what we have in common, not which that divides us. So therefore, on Purim specifically, whenever there's an ego, there's an I, there's an anochi, so I'm the one doing the mitzvah. I want the geschmack, I want the thrill, I want the satisfaction, I want the fulfillment, I want the credit. But sometimes there's a point where we realize, you know what? Even all that I do, I'm not really doing. When the surgeon successfully heals the patient, they're just an agent for Hashem. When the lawyer successfully makes the argument to defend the person, they're an agent of Hashem. When a rabbi gives a speech or offers a psaq or comfort or counsel, they're an agent of Hashem. Every one of us in any capacity we're in, we realize that as much as we should be proud of the effort that we exert, but its success is not us. We are simply agents. We are messengers of Hashem. The whole reason we're here is to represent Him. We are here on this earth to be His angels, to hold that door, to say please and thank you, to call and check in, to show up and support, to heal and to help all the people around us. 
In this world, one of our names, we're just defined, we're called a shliach mitzvah. It's why we're here. We're just agents. You know, to quote a certain great series, we serve at the pleasure of the king, not the president. We serve at the pleasure of the king. So if you serve, if you've been recruited to the cabinet, the most powerful person on earth, would you ever feel like it's me, it's I, I'm responsible? You say, I serve at the pleasure of the king. So we are his agents. That's our mission. That's our very definition. It's our very identity here on earth. The secret to our success is to never take pride, is to never have it feed our ego, is to never think it's us or we're independent. But the more that we realize whatever capacity we serve, professionally and personally, that we are just agents of above, that we are ambassadors of Hashem, that we are here to advance His mission on earth, will be matzliach, will be successful. Any success we meet is only, is only because of the force and the will of Hashem the Mishaleach, of the one who sends us, not because we are the shliach. So when you get to that point where you realize, I'm just an extension of, I'm no different from, I don't have an independent identity, then it doesn't make a difference, the Mishaleach or the shliach. So really, when you receive my Mishaleach Manos, it's not from me. Who and what enabled me to buy, to organize, to purchase, to put together, and to transmit to you this Mishloch Manos? It's all from Hashem. So what's the difference whether you got it from me or you got it from another person? I don't need the pride. I don't need the ego. I don't need to impress you. I don't need to feel good about myself. I don't need the credit. Because really all I am is an agent of Hashem. So specifically when it comes to the mitzvahs of Purim, where a person is supposed to live with such an acute awareness of Hashem, with such an ongoing faith in the presence of Hashem, there is no me, there is no you. All there is, is us as an extension of Him, of Hashem. So whether I deliver it, or whether you deliver it for me, unlike other times where I'm focused on getting the credit or having the positive experience, all I care about is the result, because equally we are agents of Hashem. And this is how Rav Meshur concludes. Sheyesh bitel hamachitzos bein adam lachavero. Those walls, those barriers, those divisions that normally divide us, they're erased. They're gone on Purim. You know where they were gone? On the way to the gas chamber. You know they were gone in the moment of liberation from the camps. When the Jewish people are threatened and when we survive, we don't focus on, well, you have a different yarmulke than I do. You send your kids to a different school than I do. You voted for a different party than I did. So therefore, I can't stand next to you on the way into the gas chamber. And I won't sing and dance with you on the way liberated out of the camp. No one said such a thing. When you're collectively threatened and you collectively survive, nobody says such a thing. Nobody cares about the differences and the divisions. All we see is the commonality. All we see is the unity. So Purim, we were threatened. And Purim, we survived. And Purim, we acknowledge that even when Hashem's name is not in the Megillah, it's really all from Him. We feel connected with Him. So those artificial divisions, those man-made, unnecessary absolutely gratuitous divisions that normally break us apart, they're gone. 
And therefore, normally we say, better for me to do it than for you to do it. Better for me to do it myself. Better for me to show that love, that affection, that eagerness to do it myself. But Purim's the exception. So in that matzav, in that state, there is no me, there is no you, all there is is us as an extension of him. You deliver it, I'll deliver it, it doesn't really matter. This is the one mitzvah we do, Ayyadeh Shliach. I think a second explanation, he doesn't mention this about Meshur, that you could suggest is, Purim is all about bittel. Purim is all about getting rid of our sense of das. All year round, I think, I understand, I comprehend, I see. Purim, I realize that I have no idea. And whether it's through a medium of a little extra l'chaims, or whether it's simply the mindfulness to say, I don't know anything. I don't understand anything. Everyone comes in a costume. I don't even know who everyone is. That's the origin of the costume. The world is v'nahapochu. It's upside down. I think I can predict, anticipate. I think I understand. I think I control. Purim, I let it all go. I let go and I let God. I don't understand anything. I can't predict anything. Have these last two years not taught us anything? If they've not taught us anything, it's we can't predict, we shouldn't anticipate, and we shouldn't think we can control anything. Nothing. Nothing about this virus, nothing about the geopolitical war that's taking place and God forbid won't escalate. We don't know, we can't control, we don't anticipate anything. The world is upside down. We world costumes to say we can't even understand on the surface, the superficial. We don't even know who one another is or how we appear is not really what is. Everything is upside down and backwards. So specifically on that holiday, it's not about me. There is no anochi. I have no sense of I. I relinquish, I absolutely nullify my sense of I. I submit and surrender to Hashem in the ultimate way. That's Purim and that's why I can do it. One other quick thought and then we dive into Parshat Tzav together. Dive in. And that is from Mori Varabi Rav Asher Weiss, the Minchas Asher. He says such a beautiful idea. You know, unlike normally the Sefer Torah, the way we read the Torah is it's rolled, it's a scroll. And when you're done with one column and you turn the column, you turn it over and you roll the Torah to the next column that you're now going to read. If Haftorah has ever read from a cloth, Mr. Shafton read it from a cloth this past Shabbos, so he read it and it's rolled, it's a scroll, and you turn the scroll so you could read the column. The Megillah is the exception. The Megillah, we don't read it in a scroll. How do we read it? We unfold it. And the reason given is the Megillah is called Igeres Hazos, it's called an Igeres, a letter. A letter is not read in a scroll, so we open up the letter and we fold it. We keep turning the folds of it, but it's entirely open. Why? So Mori Varabi Rav says, I think, a very, very beautiful and powerful idea. He says, rather than rolling up to the left side of the Megillah as it's read, the left side is folded over and over so that when the Megillah is finally completed, the entire story is exposed at once. Each incident of the Megillah presents no proof of Hashem's involvement. Only when you see the entire story from the beginning to the end do you go, oh, that's why that happened that way. That wasn't a coincidence. That wasn't chance. Hashem wasn't hidden or missing or a mystery. Only when the whole thing is open can you now see the entire picture from the beginning to the end. So normally we roll and we scroll and it goes and we cover up what we've just read. But when it comes to Purim, we unfold it and the whole thing's open and we see it all at once because it's only with that 30,000 foot perspective we can look down and now we see Hashem's guiding hand and the entire story of Purim as it unfolds. The Arizal notes, the great Rav Yitzchak Luria, the great Kabbalist, the Arizal notes that although Hashem's name is never explicitly mentioned in the Megillah, 
it does appear as an acronym in several places. One, the beginning of the Megillah, Yavo HaMelech, I'm sorry, the end, Yavo HaMelech VeHaman Hayom, when Esther says, let the king and Haman come today, Yud of Yavo, Hey of HaMelech, Vav of Haman, Hey of Hayom is Yud, then Hey, then Vav, then Hey. Hashem's name are the acronym, the first letters of, excuse me, Yavo HaMelech VeHaman Hayom. Then the beginning of the Megillah, Kichalsa Elav Hara, the harm against Haman was final, the last letters, Ki Yud Kalsahe Elav Vav Haraahe, spell out Hashem's name. So the pasuk with Hashem's name in its first letters depicts Haman's rise to power and the threat of destruction that loomed over Klal Yisrael. The second pasuk in which Hashem's name appears in the last letters is Haman's downfall. This highlights the central lesson of the Megillah that Hashem's name appears at the beginning to spell the words of destruction, and at the end it reveals His name really spells the words of salvation. That Hashem's name is there from the beginning to the end. Even when it seems hopeless and helpless, doom and gloom, even when it sounds like destruction, Hashem's name is embedded. And when it all works out and there's salvation, when there's reason, when we can make sense of it, Hashem's name is again embedded. From beginning to end, Hashem's name is embedded at the start and at the finish because Hashem is with us all along. So we don't read it rolling it like we do everything else. We read it where it is all open at once, so we see it all at once. Parsha Tzad, page 568 in the Arts Scroll Stone, Chumash. By Daber Hashem El Moshe Leimor, God spoke to Moshe saying, Tzaves Aaron Vez Banav Leimor, Zos Torasa Ola, Hi Haola Amogdal Mizbeach Kol Alayla Araboker, Veisham Mizbeach Tukad Bo. We're continuing with the laws of the sacrifices of the Karbanos. The goal of the Karbanos is to become Karov, to breed and to bring us close to Hashem. That is the essence, that is the goal, that is what they are about. So Tzav, command Aaron and his sons. Rashi already notes that this is a relatively harsh language. Tzav, command. It doesn't say emor, speak to, say. It doesn't say daber, communicate, transmit. What does it say? Tzav. Tzav means, Tzav means command. Tzav is a relatively harsh language. Command. So Amar Shimon Rashi quotes, Why does it need Tzav? We've spoken about this years past. So if you're listening to multiple Parsha Shiurim, I know we've spoken about this years past, but we're going to bring some new insights this year. So what does it need to say Tzav? Command. Why such a harsh way of communicating? Rashi tells us, you know why? There's an expense involved. Costs money. So when I tell you to do something and it doesn't cost you anything, you're more likely to do it. But if you have to reach into your wallet, like for the global campaign, express gratitude, enable and help you to continue. Everyone, partial class is amazing. Could you help us get it out there? Eh, it's not that amazing. I wish I could. I've already allocated everywhere. Ukraine, which of course is a priority, give to the Ukraine, certainly before you give to the global campaign. So chesron kis, chesron kis, the moment there's an expense, the moment we have to dig into our own pocket, Ah, maybe, I don't know, it's not that great, I don't love you that much. Is there any other way? Do we have to? I can't really afford. So Moshe has to come along and say, Tzav. Here we have the strong language of, because of the Chisar and Kis, we have the strong language of Tzav. Now, we have to understand, asks Rabbi Yechezkel Levinstein, the Mashkech of Panovich, to whom is this command directed? To the cheapest, stingiest, least enthusiastic member of Klai Yisrael? No. To whom is this command directed? Aaron. Saves Aaron Vezbanov. Hello, Koin God the Lorak Shaya Adam Mamarom and Biosishabador. Who echad me Ashir Magadolam Baam Yisrael? Mitzvah Legadlo Bekesef. It's not only that the Koin Godol is supposed to be distinguished in their righteousness 
and virtue so that one wouldn't think that the expense would hold them back. One wouldn't think they would need extra encouragement or cajoling. Not only are they supposed to be among the most righteous and virtuous, but they're also supposed to be independently wealthy. Kemosh Matzinu Gemara in Yuma says, God Maybe not independently, we're supposed to make him wealthy. Because, you know, people respect and admire wealth. If the Kohen Godel was a schlepper with worn, tattered clothing, driving a jalopy who didn't know where his next meal was coming from and couldn't pay his mortgage, how would anyone respect him? So our job is to bolster, to, to hold him up. So you're talking about a Kohen Godel who had money, and you're talking about a Kohen Godel who's supposed to be righteous. This is the individual that Moshe has to say tzav, this is the person that we're worried and afraid if they find out the cost of matzah, they're going to throw away Pesach. This is the person, this is the coin God what you're talking about. This is the highest level of the land. What are we talking about? What are we talking about? Moreover, we find the end of the parsha. Aaron didn't deviate right or left. Aaron didn't hesitate whatsoever. So here are the great Aaron who doesn't hesitate who with alacrity, enthusiasm, and zeal, and passion, and this is the one that Moshe needs to say tzav, because it's going to cost him a few shekel? Are you kidding me? Seriously? You know what Rav Yechezka Levenstein says? Yarda ha-Torah la-omek t'chunos nafsho shal adam. And the answer is, yeah. There's a piece of all of us that doesn't want to spend. There's a piece of every one of us whose first instinct is, Hashem, isn't there a way for me and you to be close without it costing me? Isn't there a way to feel connected without digging into my wallet? Every one of us, including the great Kohen Gadol, no matter how wealthy and no matter how righteous, it's tchunas nafsho shal adam, the very human psyche, the very way we were designed. You know, even somebody for whom the money won't make a difference remains aware of whether there's a cost involved or not. Even the person for whom the money doesn't make a difference is aware, is this free or is there a cost? There's a book called Scorecasting, which is a very interesting book. Uh, statisticians and economists did an analysis of sports. A fascinating book. Can you freeze out the free throw shooter if you call a timeout? Does it really work if all kinds of stats that we assume, you'll only appreciate this if you like sports, but it did the data analysis to, to determine, is it true? Is it true that superstars always get the call from the ref? Is it true that all kinds of these things, if you're interested in that, it's fascinating. So one of the things it talks about in there is when athletes or celebrities or superstars are invited to make appearances. So they're offered $100,000 to come make an appearance at an event or compete in a tournament, let's say a PGA star. So the, the book gives the data about how often those superstars say no, that money's not worth it to them. And then they say, I'll fly out your whole family. Now, if you're the superstar, what would you say? Fly out my whole family. I could fly out my whole family. I'm a millionaire or a billionaire, plus the $100,000 you're offering me, I can allocate a little bit of it to fly out my family. How much money is that after all? If they were offered, instead of $100,000, we'll offer you $105,000, They'd say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need the money. I don't want to go. But the moment they say, we'll fly out your family, they say, I'm in. There's some psyche, there's some mental switch that's flipped when you, ooh, you fly out my family. Ooh, what a deal. What a bargain. What a saving. 
even though financially, mathematically, it doesn't add up. The wealthiest person in the world can have all the money in the world in which that cost won't impact their lives whatsoever, yet they remain very aware of the cost. So Rav Yechezkel Levenstein answers, you see from here something very powerful, not negative about Aaron HaKohen, this is not a criticism of him, but rather it's a observation, it's a reflection on the human psyche and the human condition, that we were designed in such a way that the moment something costs us, we're aware of it and we hesitate because of it. And that's why it's sav. We have to push through and we have to persevere. And we have to make sure, what do we care about? And what do we value? That's what I wrote about in the weekly last week. Imagine if somebody found your credit card statement, what would it say about you? Do you pay more to stream entertainment or do you pay more to stream Torah? The global campaign. You're willing to pay to stream entertainment. What are you willing to pay to stream Torah? It's a simple question. But really, all of our all of our bills and finances all together. What do they say about us? Ches from kiss. What, do we, what are we willing to spend on? What do we run eagerly to spend on? And what do we hesitate and demure and argue and rationalize and justify to spend money? People do not like to part with their money. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter once visited a very wealthy person to collect staka. And the man opened his safe to give the money and he was called out of the room for a moment. So Rabbi Yisrael Salanter sat there in shock and he got up and he ran out of the room. So the gvir, the wealthy individual, when he came back to give him the gift, said, why'd you leave the room? You're Rav Yisrael Salanter. You're the founder, the father of the Muslim movement. If anyone could be trusted with an open safe filled with cash, it's you. Why'd you run out of the room? So listen to what Rav Yisrael said to him. Gemara Makos Chav Gimel tells us, There are two things that the human being is drawn to, desires, yearns, there is no apetropis for. And they are gezel, we love money. And if it's easy to cut corners or bend the rules or misreport on our taxes, it's so tempting. Every human being is tempted by it. Not every human being gives into that temptation, but every human being is tempted. Gezel and arayos, promiscuity, licentiousness, sexuality, everyone struggles and is drawn to it. So which one is a greater, is a greater desire? So the Gemara there says, that miutan ba'arayas and rubam begezel. Miutan ba'arayas, very few people actually cross the line of promiscuity, but most people steal at some point. At some point, they're using their business phone for personal reasons. They build an extra minute that they weren't working as hard as they could for that minute. They took a pencil home from work that didn't. Eh, rubam, most people at some point struggled with being completely honest. So said Rav Yisrael Salanter, if fewer people violate the boundary of promiscuity than of gezel, than of stealing, and yet when it comes to promiscuity, you have a prohibition called yichud, you're not allowed to be alone with someone with whom you're not allowed to be intimate, because temptation would be too great. There's a prohibition of yichud. Vice President Pence observed that prohibition. You're not allowed to be alone. So if the violation of yichud applies to another person, and more people steal than cross the line of promiscuity, then there was an iser yichud for me to be alone with the money in your safe. So when you left the room, I got up and ran out. I wasn't tempted. I wasn't going to steal. But if the human condition, the human psyche is programmed to be drawn, I didn't even want to be tempted. Just like if I were alone with a woman in a locked room, I wouldn't do anything, but I'm not allowed to be, so too I'm not allowed to be. So you see what a person values, what they care about, and we see this observation of, in general, what we're tempted by, by the need to have a lashon sav, command, 
such a strong language, Aaron needed it. Why did Aaron need it? Even the great Aaron, he was wealthy and he was righteous. Why did he need it? Lashon Sav, because once there's a chisaron kiss, once it costs money, everybody reacts differently. It changes the equation altogether. Okay, next. Next insight on this. So we'll look at Rav Soloveitchik. Soloveitchik says, in the Rav Chumash, Tzav. The Torah often uses variants of the word Tzav in discussing the service in the Mishkan. Viata Titzaveh, Parshas Titzaveh. Rashi on this Pasuk provides the following background. Tzav means Zeros Miyad Uladoros. The word Tzav means immediate moment for future generations and urgency. Torah must especially express urgency in a situation where there's a loss of money. Many mitzvos involve monetary loss. So why is tzav used specifically when it comes to karbonos? You know what else includes monetary loss? Pesach. It says seven days matzahs you should eat. It doesn't say tzav. Do you know what a handmade shmur matzah is going to cost? Tzav. You know what else costs money? Jewish tuition. It doesn't say, when you teach your children, Sav, dig deep, go in debt for years to come, for tuition. You know what else costs a lot of money? Your lulav and esrog, your dalad minim. It doesn't say, dig deep, buy the deluxe set, four species, lulav and esrog. So why is it specifically here when it comes to karbonos? That's the question of the Rav. The loss of money is intrinsic to certain mitzvahs, such as the mitzvah of giving charity. So the Pasuk says, Sav has been a Yisrael. The word Sav is used when a loss of assets is intrinsic to the mitzvah. Offering a sacrifice similarly involves such a loss of assets. Rashi, right? So, in other words, someone can gift you these other things, but then there are intrinsic. When you give tzedakah, by definition, you're giving away money, it costs you, by definition. So too over here, the korban, you're giving away something that costs you. What are you giving away that costs you? Can't someone gift you the korban like they can gift you the dalad minim? Rashi uses the term zeros, or urgency, in describing the mitzvahs fulfilled. There's an urgency associated with mitzvahs that involve monetary loss. What is the meaning of the word ledoros in this context? What does it mean, bless you, for generations? The mitzvahs of mezuzah, tefillin, and Shabbos are clearly ledoros too. Thousands of years have gone by, and these mitzvahs are observed as they have been when they were originally given. But in what way are the mitzvahs of the Mishkan practiced today? There has been no carbon tamid for almost 2,000 years. In what sense does this mitzvah ledoros? The word tzav here means urgency, zeros. It means miyad immediately and ledoros. Do it for generations, but you don't do it for generations. This is about to spell out, our parsha is about to tell us all about the laws of sacrifices, which ended with the destruction of the Beis Amitash. So where is the fulfillment of the ledoros for generations? The Gemara Megillah Lamed Aleph recounts a conversation between Hashem and Avraham in the context of the Brisbane of Sarum. Avraham asked how he has, how he was to know that Hashem would not forsake the Jewish people if they sinned. Hashem answered in the merit of the Karbonos. Avram insisted the merit is fine when the Karbonos are in existence. What happens after the destruction, after the Khurban? Hashem replied that if B'nai Yisrael learned the law surrounding the Karbonos, he would consider their study as a virtual sacrificial offering. When we cannot offer sacrifices, we recite the halachas pertaining to them as a substitute. There's a mikdash in our day as well. Not physically, but where? In the study of halacha. This is the Mitzorah of Torah Shabbat Peh. Today we read Parshas Shkolem as if the Beis Amikdash was still standing. It's Ludoros. Parshas Parah reminds us to be ritually pure, 
can bring the carbon Pesach. Although we no longer offer a carbon Pesach, we read Parshas Parah as if the Beis Hamikdash still exists. Says the Rav, we don't have a Beis Hamikdash today, so where's the Lodoros? Where is the message in perpetuity of the sacrifices? The answer is, when we study these laws, it is as if we have done them. The truth is, in some ways, it's even more. Because these laws only pertain to certain time, time times. The Karmbanos could be offered only during certain distinct times, but you could learn about them anytime. So you could tap into the energy of the Karban by learning about it in some ways that even surpasses the performance of them. So where do we find Hashem today? The Gemara says in Brachos that after the Beis Amitash was destroyed, where can Hashem be found? Dalad Amash Shel Halacha. He can be found in the four cubits of Halacha. Says Mori Varabi of Shechter, what does that mean? Once the Mesa Mikdash is destroyed, where can Hashem be found? In the four cubits of Halacha. What does that mean? It means one went to the Mesa Mikdash in order to have a rendezvous with Hashem. In the Mesa Mikdash, you felt an intense presence. The Shechin is a Shachain. He was available, he was accessible. There was a closeness, there was an intimacy, there was a connection. Where do we find that today? When we learn Torah. Talad Amashel Halacha. When we sit and we learn Torah, Hashem is there. We transport ourselves into a virtual Beis HaMikdash. That same feeling and that same result that came from being present in the Beis HaMikdash is what we can achieve when we immerse ourselves, not in the Beis HaMikdash, but Dalad Amashel Halacha. When we immerse ourselves in the study of Torah and in Halacha, we find Hashem in that place. Rav Nachman is another interpretation. We're going to get past this Pasuk. I find myself saying this weekly, but we're going to get past the first Pasuk. Rav Nachman of Breslov has another beautiful insight here. Says the Heiligar of Nachman. Ein sava l'alashon ziros miyad al-adoros. Om Reb Shimon. B'yosa tzorach l'zariz makam sheish chesron kis. V'hakavani shilifamim yachol lihigarim l'adam hefzerim korban l'anasa karoi. You could lose money. There was the cost of the korban. And if the korban was puzzle, let's say the korban was illegitimate, then you had to bring another korban. That costs money. You had to dig deep into your funds. So the Torah says, because there's a cost associated, we need a little extra encouragement. Do it, even though it'll be expensive. Do it, even though it costs money. However, So now Rab Nachman, Again, we're looking at this halacha, Shulchan Hashabs of Rab Nachman. Rab Nachman doesn't explicitly say these ideas. They're based on his teachings in Likutei Me'arat Mu'aran and applied to our parsha. So Rav Nachman Likutei Mu'aran writes the following, Chelik Aleph Simen Chaf Aleph. Misherotze lezakos legilo elokus, ya'ir lo bo'or rav ma'od. A person who wants to merit being lit up by the light of Hashem. We walk around and we're in darkness. A person who's down and downtrodden and depressed and despondent describes... I'm in a very dark place. I hear from people, sadly, too much. I'm in a very dark place. Dark place means I feel alone, I feel abandoned, I feel I'm struggling. A dark place means I'm struggling with faith, with connection. A dark place. So who doesn't want to break out into the light? Who doesn't want to become enlightened in the most positive sense? Who doesn't want to bask in the light of Hashem? So what do you need to do in order to achieve that? You need to sanctify and purify the seven candles. What are the seven candles? What are the seven prisms or windows into the light of Hashem? You ready? They are the two eyes, the two ears, the two nostrils. Six. So these are two eyes, two ears, 
and two nostrils and the mouth. I'm sorry, I left out the mouth. So the seven entrances of the head are the seven candles, the seven windows through which we experience the light of Hashem, meaning our senses. The more that we sanctify, the more that we elevate what we look at, what we listen to, what we smell, what we speak, the more that we sanctify these entrances into who we are, these seven candles, these seven windows, these seven entrances, the more that we can experience and be lit up from the light of Hashem. Now, most of the entrances have a cover. Most of them have a cover that protect them. And they protect negative things from infiltrating and compromising, corrupting. Our eyes have eyelids. Our eyelids close. Our eyelids protect our eyes. Our eyelids create tears. Something's coming at your eye and you have a good response time, your eyelid should close. Our eyelid is there to protect our eye. It snaps closed quickly. It responds to the threat in order to protect it. You know what else it can protect us from? If there's an image opposite us that we shouldn't be looking at, close your eyes. We have eyelids. We have the capacity to close our eyes. Whether it's from a particle that's about to fly into our eye and threaten it, or whether it's from or whether it's from an image which is about to infiltrate and invade our eye and threaten it. We have eyelids. With your ears. I go to weddings and I see people come now with the music is so loud. I know I've reached that age. And now I'm complaining about how loud the music is. Then when you don't hear the music, that's the next stage. But I'm at the stage where you complain about how loud the music is. So now people come to weddings and simchas with Earplugs. They put earplugs in their ears in order to protect their hearing. And the Gemara Ksuba says, you know what earplugs are really for? Ksuba's dafhei. Amr chazal, social adam domos li Why are a person's fingers shaped like spades? The reason our fingers look the way they do is, you're supposed to plug. The fingers were designed by Hashem to fit perfectly in your ear. Why? That's disgusting. You don't pick your ear in public. Why are your fingers fitting in your ear? Because if something threatens to infiltrate, to invade your ears, that will corrupt and compromise, i.e. Lashon Hara, profanity, vulgarity, gossip, slander, if a weapon of mass destruction is about to enter your earlobe, your eardrum, Kodesh Baruch Hu designed the fingers to put into the ears to protect them. It's not my cute little drush. It's a Gemara Ksubas, Dafhei. The Gemara there says that's also why you have dangly ear, earlobes. Your earlobe can fold up and fit right into your ear. Someone's talking Lashonari, you should fold up your earlobe, put it in your ear, I can't hear you. Kodesh Baruch Hu created an opening, a window, but if you want the light of Hashem to come through, you have to protect that window. Keep that window clean. Keep that window open. And if there are poison, contaminating poison that enters the images through the eye or the poor speech through the ears. We have the capacity to protect it. What about the mouth? The mouth has multiple protections and walls. 
חז"ל זה הלשון מוקפת בשתי חומוס, אחס של עצם ואחס של בשר, כדי לשמור עליה שלא תשתלח בחופשיות ותארץ העולם בדיבור עם רעים. כמובן ערכן דף ט"ו says, the mouth is such a weapon of mass destruction. If we say the wrong thing, we can murder and kill and destroy that it needs to have two boundaries, two walls. What are the two walls? First we have the teeth and then we have the lips. You could close your teeth, which will hold back your tongue, and then you can close your lips. So each of these entrances, the seven candles, the seven windows to the light of Hashem, two eyes, two ears, and a mouth, have a covering, a kiss. A kiss is a covering. Which is the one that doesn't? The nose doesn't. The nose doesn't need to be protected from forbidden smells because there is no prohibition to imbibe a prohibited smell. So what is the nose a symbol of? Kaas, anger. How do we describe anger? Charon af. Anger is described in the Torah as nostrils flaring. So now Reb Nachman, or based on Reb Nachman, we reinterpret this entire teaching. When do you need to encourage someone? When do they need Lashon Tzav? When do they need the stronger language of encouragement of Tzav? In a place of Chesron Kis. So we interpret that until now to mean when do they need most encouragement? When there is an expense, a cost. But Rabbi Nachman says, chisar and kiss means when there's no covering. The eyes have a covering, the ears have a covering, the mouth has a covering, but anger has no covering. And it needs the greatest protection. The threat and the danger of losing ourselves to anger, that requires the greatest, the greatest protection. Chisar and kiss is the thing that has no covering. It's a whole new interpretation. I guarantee you never heard this before. I never saw this before. What is the place that has no cover? Not chisar and kiss that there's an expense or cost. Chisar and kiss that the place that has no covering. What has no covering? Kas. Person can easily get angry with whatever bothers us. When you're angry, you lose your mind. When you're angry, it clouds your judgment. When you're angry, you make poor decisions. When it comes to anger, there is no natural response. If a particle is flying at your eye without your thinking about it, your eyelid shuts. Your ear, you can close it up. It's so loud, you stand at the wedding with your hand over your ears. If there's danger or damage, you instinctively cover up. But when it comes to anger, charon af, we fly into a fit of rage and anger without even thinking about it. It doesn't have a kiss. It's a chisaron kiss. It's missing, it's covering. And that's why it needs a lashon sav, because when it comes to moderating anger, we need an extra emphasis, extra enthusiasm, extra zeal. That is the teaching of the Halakha Rebbe Nachman. Okay, let's go weiter. Let's go further. Let's go further. Let's see. Rav Ruvain Feinstein. Perek Vav, Pasa Gimel. Moving right along. V'la'avash ha'koen midovadam ha'chesevadi basha b'saro. V'hirim es ha'deshem esha tochal ha'isha olam mizbeach. V'samo ha'etzal mizbeach. So we now move to the opening service that's being described is what's called the Trumas Hadeshen. 
the Trumas Adeshin is taking away the ash. Whatever burned on the altar overnight created a pile of ash. And the first service of the morning was taking out the garbage. We've spoken in years past that in Judaism, taking out the garbage is a dignified service. There's nothing, it's not beneath any of us. When you walk outside and you see a piece of garbage, it's not beneath anybody, it's not someone else's job. But taking out the garbage, removing the ash from the altar, removing the ash from the altar. So Ruben Feinstein, in his new safer, Nahar Shalom asks, the very first service before the daily avodah was the Trumas Adeshin. Cohen taking some ash from his beach, moving it to a spot near the eastern side of the ramp, where it miraculously sunk into its place. What exactly was the lesson of the service? Some people under the impression was simply an act of housekeeping. Right? The easy understanding is, if you're going to bring the next sacrifice, you need the Mizbeach to be clear, so you've got to remove the ash. If you're going to have more garbage to throw away, someone eventually has to empty the garbage. So that's a simple understanding, that's a simple purpose. However, this approach is incorrect. We must bear in mind, he writes, that there was room on the Mizbeach for a fire that was 24 amas square. There were offerings that were burnt upon it all day. The fats and limbs were offered well into the night. The mitzvah of Trumas Adeshin is to take a mere shovel full and place it on the side of the Mizbeach. The rest of the ash that needed to be cleared was moved, but not part of the service. What then was the lesson of the avodah of the Trumas Adeshin? Meaning, if it was to take out the garbage, it's kind of peculiar, you didn't take out the whole garbage. You only took out a little bit of the garbage. Yechevet says, it's garbage day tomorrow, could you take out all the garbage? And then I take out one bag, and I leave two full garbage drums. I get into bed. You took out the garbage? I took out a bag. That won't bode well. I don't suggest trying that at home. <laughs> if you're supposed to take out the garbage, you got to take out the garbage. So why is the Kohen not taking out the garbage? He's only taking out one bag. He's taking out one shovel full of ash. Clear out the top of the Mizbeach. It's time for the new Korbanos. A. B. Where does he put the ash? Imagine she says, did you take out the garbage? Yeah, I put it by the front door. Front door? That doesn't help. The garbage men don't come to the front door. Bring it to the curb. Bring it to the edge of the driveway. What are you doing? So here too, the coin took the shovel full of ash and he put it next to the ramp. What do you mean? Take it to the dumpster. Take it out to the garbage. If you're doing the Trumas Adeshin, if you're taking out the garbage, go all the way. Don't do half a job. Why didn't he keep going? Why didn't he keep going? So previously we've shared an insight of Rav Hirsch, which I love. It's a Yisker in- insight. I said it over at a Yisker. The insight of Rav Hirsch is, what are you doing on top of that Mizbeach? What are you about to offer and bring? Not a trick question, people. Korban, sacrifice. Before I could bring today's sacrifice, I have to honor and remember that there was a sacrifice yesterday. What do I think? I'm the first big Kanaka to bring a sacrifice? I'm the first person who's been asked to sacrifice? I'm the first person who had to be Moser Nefesh? Before I make my sacrifice today, I remember there were those who came before me yesterday and made a sacrifice yesterday. And I honor their sacrifice by taking the ash and putting it next to the Mizbeach. This is not functional. This is not simply to be able to take out the garbage. That is not the point. That is not the purpose of this, taking out the garbage. This is a service. The coin put on special clothing for this. Coin didn't put on a sweatpants and torn t-shirt, take out the garbage. There was a special clothing, special wardrobe, because this wasn't functional, pragmatic, taking out the garbage. This was a service. You honor the sacrifice of yesterday before you approach the Mizbeach to bring your sacrifice of today. But Rav Ruben Feinstein brings a different answer. At Akedah Yitzchak, the Torah recounts that Avram offered the ram that was tangled in the bushes in Ola, Tachaz Ben-O, in place of his son. 
Rashi there cites the exposition of the Medrash, that with each avoda that Avram performed with that ram, he prayed Hashem should view the service as having been performed on Yitzchak instead. Rashi writes, on each service that he performed with it, he would say, may it be the will of Hashem that this was done to my son, as if my son was slaughtered, as if my son was sprinkled, as if his skin was flayed, as if he was burned and became ashes. The significance of these prayers was great. We reference the ashes of Yitzchak, who of course was not touched in the blessing of Gurus and Shachar Shmonasri in the first day of Rosh Hashanah. In the piyut of Tala Zu, we mention the ashes of Yitzchak. It makes its way into the dominating of Rosh Hashanah. Additionally, the Yerushalmi and Tainas cites one opinion that the reason ashes were placed on top of the Aaron Kodesh at a public fast was to recall before Hashem the merit of Yitzchak, who is considered to have been consumed by the fire and turned to ash. What is the significance of ash in these statements of Chazal? We know that an offering is offered with its slaughter and that it affects atonement with the sprinkling of the blood. What is the symbolism of the offering being reduced to ash? Why such a focus and emphasis? Let this ash be in the honor of Yitzchak. I understand when you say, let the shechita, let the slaughter be in the honor as if I slaughtered Yitzchak. Let the sprinkling of the blood be like the sprinkled the blood of Yitzchak. Let the skin be flayed like the skin of Yitzchak were flayed. Let each part of the sacrifice correspond as if it happened to Yitzchak. But the ash? Why the ash? The ash is the garbage. The ash is the gurnished. The ash is the nothing. Why are we so focused on the ash? I believe the answer, says Ravuvain, is that the ash is the physical representation of the idea that we have taken a given commandment to its absolute completion. This is what Avram prayed for with the ashes of Yitzchak. He wished that Hashem would keep performing the merit that Avram attained by carrying out the instructions of Hashem through their final stage. When the coin removes some of the ash from the previous day's offering, he is ceremoniously capping off the service that took place the previous almost 24 hours with an action that demonstrates that Hashem's service has been completely and optimally carried out to the last detail. Not only were the mandatory services performed the Shechita through the Zerika, but even the fats and limbs that were offered were consumed and rendered ash, the way the mitzvah is supposed to be performed. With this declaration regarding the previous day's offering, the coin starts the new day with the same commitment, to see to it that service of Hashem will be performed optimally and will reach the level of absolute completion. So that Rav Hirsch said the ash represents the sacrifice of yesterday. We have to honor that before we move on to the sacrifice of today. Rav Ruben Feinstein Shlita says something different. You know what this emphasis and focus on the ash represents? Hashem, yesterday I didn't bail. I didn't leave in the middle. I didn't give up. I didn't mail it in. I didn't do half a job. I saw it all the way through. This ash represents the completion. You know, it reminds me, we do this at the Seder. When we finish the Seder, what do we sing? Chasal Sidur Pesach Kehil Chaso. There's no other mitzvah that you do. You know, shake the Lulav and Esrach, put it down and say, Hashem, I did the Dalit Minim. The end of the hundredth coal of the shofar. We did it, yay! Chasal Sidur Pesach. The Korban Pesach. These Korbanos. So there's this notion, the ash, the Trumas Hadesh, and Hashem, I take a shovel of the ash and I put it next to the Mizbeach because I want to show you and demonstrate to you and I want to demonstrate to myself that I completed what I started yesterday. I got it done. I made it to the finish line. I saw it all the way through. You know, sadly, that's so unusual. How often do we start projects? How often are we excited at the beginning of a project? But then we abandon it, we bail on it, we run out of steam. I told you before that the Ramcha writes in Mesidus Hasharim in the chapter of Zrizus. Zrizus, alacrity, zeal, enthusiasm. He says there are two types. You need Zrizus to start a project, and you need Zrizus when you're going to run into the wall of the project. Project in the beginning is easy to have Zrizus. So excited. Going to finish all Shasta Dafiomi. 
I'm so excited I'm going to lose 100 pounds. I'm so excited I'm going to train for a marathon. I'm so excited I'm going to paint the garage. And then in the middle of the project, you run into that wall. It's not so exciting anymore. It's not so fun anymore. I'm not so motivated anymore. That says the Ramchal is when you need the second burst of Zrizos. So we take that shovel full of ash and we say, I didn't give up. Even when it wasn't so exciting anymore. Even when I ran out of steam. Even when I ran out of time. I didn't give up. This ash represents seeing it all the way through. All the way until completion. Perik Vav Pasuk Dalad. He, places, he removes his clothing and he puts on other clothing and he removes the ash to the outside of the camp to a pure place. The Kohen puts on special taking out the garbage clothing. Put on your take out the garbage outfit. Why does one have a taking out the garbage outfit? What does that say? It says Rav Gifter. Shabbos. You know why he changes his clothing? Because the clothing that you wore to cook in the kitchen is not the same uniform you wear when it's time to pour a cup of wine. You take off the apron, you change your clothing, and now you pour the cup of wine. Says Rav Gifter, the Rashiva tells. What do you mean you change the clothing? It's the same person? You know, you don't have the same person who's in the back who's cooking, is not the same as the sous chef, is not the same as the dishwasher, is not the same as the maitre d'. It's different positions of distinction. When it comes to the service of Hashem, there is no hierarchy. There is no high and low. There is no prominent and there is no lowly. When it comes to the service of Hashem, everything is a privilege. Everything is, everything is a, a privilege. You're collecting the Sidurim and Chumashim. You're organizing the chairs. You're picking up the garbage outside the shul. Nothing is beneath anyone. It's all a privilege. And you learn that from this Pasuk, from this Rashi. Even though when it comes to others, there are different people who do different positions and they have different status, different title, different compensation. And we view them with different prominence, but not so in the world of Avodah Hashem. In the world of Avodah Hashem, there is no class system, there is no hierarchy. Anyone engaged and involved in the world of serving Hashem, anyone who's advancing the will of Hashem, anyone who's advancing the vision of Hashem, we're all equal in his eyes and we should all be equal in our eyes because we're all part of advancing that mission. Perik Vav, Pasik Vav, finally turn the page, page 570 in the article Stone Chumash. The name of Rav Druk's farm. What does that mean? A permanent fire should remain on the altar. Permanent fire. The Shla Kadosh. Shnei Luchas Abris, Rabbi Shai Halevi Horowitz. The Shla Kadosh writes in the name of Rabbi Moshe Kordavero. Matzasik Sad Yad. He says, I found a manuscript. It says, Lamdeni Zakin Echad, Levatal Machshava, Yomar Pasik Zahar Be Poamim. Eishtamit Tukarlam is Bech Losech Be. 
The Shla quotes from Moshe Kodavero, who says, I, have a, I found a manuscript that a man taught him. And who was that man? Elio Anavi. And what was the teaching of Elio Anavi? That when a person's mind is wandering, when a person is feeling tempted, when a person is about to give up, what should they repeat? What should be their mantra over and over again? Eish tamid tukar alamizbeach. A permanent fire must burn on the altar. A person who has frivolous thoughts, a person who has negative thoughts, a person who has thoughts of temptation, should say this pasuk over and over and over again. Why? So the answer is, Aksav Sofer explains, because if the fire is always burning inside you, if you're always on fire, then you'll be able to dispel these thoughts. Fire consumes what comes in its way. So if you're on fire, it will consume whatever temptation, whatever distraction comes in your way. The key is to be on fire. And this is the battle with Amalek. How often are we on fire? We're excited, we're exuberant, we're enthusiastic. And then our fire runs out. We fail to continue to fuel it, or someone else extinguished it. Cynics, cynicism, nothing extinguishes a fire like cynicism and sarcasm. Eh, Amalek. Amalek, that's the battle with Amalek, that's the battle of Purim. That's Zechiris Amalek. Asher Karcha Baderach. Pasuk says that Amalek attacked you. Asher Karcha Baderach. Karcha means Lashon Mikra. They happened upon you. Karcha means Lashon Kor. We were on fire! Talk to a kid who comes back from the year in Israel, a seminary girl. Hashem is amazing. Don't look at that. You can't have that. Are you sure this is kosher? On fire! Fire! Trust me, they consume everything in their way. On fire! We were on fire. We came out of Mitzrayim on fire. Ten plagues, splitting of a sea. Harsinai, revelation. Wow! Hashem, what a drusha! I'm on fire! Davening and mitzvahs, my neshama. I'm on fire! And then Amalek comes, Asher Karcha Baderech, Miloshan Kor, the ice bucket challenge. Amalek comes with a big ice bucket of ice water and they splash it right on our fire. Right on our fire. There's an expression among kids which I will not use. I will paraphrase. It says, Why do you have to put out my fire? Why do you have to put out my fire? You know, they get all excited about something and you say, Really? But I don't think that's true. Look at this. Or did you think of that? Or that won't work out for this reason. They say, why would you have to put out my fire? We put out each other's fire all the time. When we ask that question, when we insert that doubt or that uncertainty or that cynicism or that sarcasm, we take a big bucket of ice water and we pour it right on the head of somebody who's on fire. You know why most often? Because we're threatened by it. When you see someone else who's on fire, singing during davening or a long shwana essay or refuses to engage in talking with you when you're trying to talk to them, Oh, you're such a holy roller. Now you're not talking? Last week you talked to me the whole davening. Such a holy roller. Look at what you wear. Look at your kid. Look at your thing. Why do you say that? They're on fire. For whatever reason, they don't want to talk right now during davening. For whatever reason, they have a long shmon essay. For whatever reason, their eyes are closed during Kedusha. They're swaying and, and singing. For whatever reason, they're coming to Shalashitis like a good Jew. That's sure. And you're going to go and put out their fire? You're a Malik. That's a Malik. In our own head, the voice in our own head that says, Ah, who are you kidding? You're long Shmona Esrei, you're shuckling. Who are you kidding? 
Five minutes from now, what you're going to be doing and watching and saying, who are you kidding? That's Amalek, it's the voice of Amalek. Put out our fire. So Shlach Kadosh has a tradition from Moshe Kodavera, who has a tradition from Eliyahu Navi himself. That when you're sitting at home and you're tempted by a sin, when you're thinking about giving up on yourself and who you could be, simply say to yourself over and over again, our Pasuk, Eish tamid tukar al mizbeach lo Eish tamid tukar al mizbeach lo Eish tamid tukar al mizbeach lo I have to have a permanent fire on this altar. I have to stay on fire. I gotta light my fire. I gotta go figure out who do I need to listen to that makes me feel lit on fire? What do I need to be around? What comes it's what fabrengen, what tish, what person, what personality, what sheer do I have to turn on? What podcast, what song, what music do I have to play? Because Eish Tamid Tukalam is Beach. I'm not letting anything lower this flame. I'm not letting anything extinguish this fire. You know what we have to be like? Trick birthday candles. Anyone ever, you ever see those trick birthday candles? Ha ha. Person blows out, they go back. Person blows them out, they're back on fire. I don't believe in blowing out candles or making wishes. That's a whole set. I'm the Grinch who stole birthdays. But that's a whole separate conversation. But let's say you believe in blowing out candles. They have trick birthday candles. You keep trying to blow them out. They keep coming back. We have to be trick birthday candles. Try blowing me out with your cynicism and your sarcasm and your skepticism. Try putting out my fire. I'm a trick birthday candle. I'm going to keep coming back at you because I'm on fire. I'm on fire because Eish Tamitu Kadal Mizbeach Lusach I'm here to be on fire. My life is about being on fire. I'm on fire. I'm not done talking about Ukraine and raising money for the Ukraine and caring about the people in Ukraine. I'm going to be to make sure that I don't give to the most popular people. You know how I come up with, I try to think not who's getting from everyone, who's not getting, who's unable to go out and experience. Be on fire to care about other people. Be on fire to show up to that sheer. Be on fire to sing and let yourself go. Be on fire in your amuna bitachon. Don't let anything put out that fire. Stay on fire. Always. Always. Ay. Taya, what can we do? It's an hour. Time is up. Even though there's so much to talk about. But we have it for next year. There's a pasuk at the end of the parsha. Then we'll feel like we read the whole parsha. So we'll feel good for one more second, thirty more seconds. At the entrance of the Olmoid shall you dwell day and night for a seven-day period, and you shall protect Hashem's charge so that you shall not die. What is going on over here? Teshvu Yomam Balaila. Sit day and night. Let's end with this. An insight of Rav Salavechik. An insider of Salavechik. You shall not leave the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days. Proper preparation is a necessary condition for any encounter with holiness. For example, in the prelude to receive the Torah, Moshe warned the nation, be ready for three days. Don't go near a woman. Similarly, Aaron had to submit to a seven-day preparation period prior to the dedication of the Mishkan. Every coin Gadol subsequently went through a similar sequester prior to Yom Kippur. The prohibition of Muktza centered on the need for preparation. You have to be Instead of being muktzah, because you didn't designate it, you have to designate it. Among the prohibitions of muktzah is food that was not prepared prior to Shabbos. One does not merit nor is worthy of celebrating Shabbos unless you prepared for it. The mitzvah sir Omer is how we prepare for the receiving of the Torah. One counts the years before Shemitah and Yovah's preparation. Holiness does not arrive suddenly. 
It comes only by invitation inherent in the act of preparation. It's a beautiful insight. Let's turn Friday into Arab Shabbos. Ein Kedusha Beli Hachana. There is no holiness without preparing for it. Anyone who tells you they stumbled on holiness, it is a counterfeit holiness. Genuine, authentic, real holiness takes preparation. It takes work, it takes mindset, it takes effort. You don't stumble or trip on holiness. It takes work, and that's what the end of the parsha is telling us. Afreilich and Purim. Have a wonderful Purim. Everyone's invited to our home from 1230 to 2 on Purim. In front, we're having a big black party with French fries. Apparently, I will be dressed as a French fry. What you do for Shalom Bayes. So everyone's invited 1230 to 2. Afreilich and Purim. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy. Pick it up, Mirza Shem, next week. Biras Global.